wasn't really an issue. I just had to say, hit the record button. And she said, the record button? I said, yeah, the one with the red circle. <laughs> At least I knew that. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Alan Hill, the nostalgic vagabond. I lived out of a backpack for many years during my 20s and some 30s. I'm less of a nomad these days. In this podcast series, I'm catching up with old friends, wonderful people I've met in the Traveller's Trek. And what better time is there to catch up, reminisce, and see how everyone is getting on in 2020? I hope you enjoy hearing about our journeys as much as we've enjoyed sharing. Travelling can be a life-changing experience. Many people, including guests I've had on this podcast, would no doubt agree. But there are different types of experiences, or events, that can force us into a direction in life that is perhaps what we could never have conceived. Or maybe we did. My guest on this podcast episode is Tommy Gwynn. Tommy and I met at the Green Tortoise in downtown Seattle during my very early days as a vagabonding nomad in early 2010. We had a mammoth chat that started after lunch and went well into the wee hours of the next morning, with breaks only to buy pizza, buy more beer, and of course, pee. At that time, Tommy was at a crossroads in his life. He was also embarking on a journey into the unknown, to work aboard a commercial fishing vessel operating out of the seas near Alaska. I too was about to start a journey into the unknown. I had all my possessions packed in a bag, and my plan was to just head east. I didn't know where I was going to end up. Tommy once said to me, quote, The biggest change in my life wasn't losing my leg, it was having a family. End quote. Listen in for a great conversation from a talking master, Tommy Gwynn. Uh, so. All right. But yeah. You ready so, to go, mate? So, what you want to talk about, brother? Yeah, so basically, I was just thinking. It's been over 10 years since I've seen you in the flesh. Right. Yeah, it's um, it's insane how quick time passes by, man. You don't even realize it. My wife and I were talking the other day, and, you know, we kind of kind of dawned on us that, yeah, we'd been together for 10 years already, and we were like, where did it go? I mean, you know, what, what were we doing for the last 10 years? Yeah. So. It was um, Easter time 2010 when we met in Seattle. And I don't know if you realize, but I just arrived in the States. Um, it was my second time to the States within a year. But before, in the summertime, I was in the Southwest, sort of California and Arizona, Nevada, for about six weeks. But I'd come back again, and I was on the start of this sort of vagabonding adventure, which didn't really have an end date. When I met you, I'd only been in Seattle a few days, and I'd spent only one day in L.A., which was where I flew into from Sydney the night before. And um, I remember it being really cold and I was wearing everything I owned. And I remember you had a massive, massive army jacket. Do you remember that? Yeah, um, I, it, it was funny, man. Um, I had uh, I'd just left Chicago and that jacket that I was wearing, my uh, that Gore-Tex jacket that I was wearing was like the one piece of field gear that I managed to yank from my time in the military after I got out. It was the one thing I managed to get away with. I tell you what, man, working up in Alaska, that thing was a lifesaver, man. 
<laughs> no doubt, yeah. We stayed at this place called the Green Tortoise Hostel on Pike yes. Place. Yes, yeah, Pike Place. In uh, Seattle. Yep. Still one of my most favorite hostels in the whole world, that place. How did you find it? It was really interesting, man. I mean, you know, my my whole thing with coming to Seattle um, at that point in time was I'd just gotten a job working in the commercial fishing industry, and I had literally spent basically the last, you know, $100 that I had to my name that night at the green tortoise in between, you know, the pizza and the beer and, um, <laughs> and, and the hotel room for the night, because I was going to go get on the ship the next morning. And like, I mean, when, when I was there, dude, I was broke, like beyond broke. I mean, you know, it, it was, it was one of those things where, you know, I had no money and like pretty much everything that I could manage to stuff into a backpack you know, to get out there and get out there on time. So yeah, it was, uh, it, it was an interesting trip for certain. Cause I, I like, I had no idea where I was going cause I'd never been to Seattle before. Had no idea where the company was at. And so, I mean, it was, uh, it was interesting. Yeah. It seemed like you and me were both embarking on this adventure of which we were forging our way into an unknown. You were about to head off onto a, in my opinion, a pretty intense new lifestyle and I was going on this kind of journey with no end date basically heading east across the continent till I just got to the end of it. My question for you Tommy is do you remember what you were feeling in your life at that time before you were getting on the boat when you were just <laughs> spending your last dollars and just you know living in the moment? Um I'll be honest with you, man. That was a really dark time for me. Um, that was 2000, 2008 to 2010 was hard, man. Um, ironically enough, I ended up, girl that I was dating in 2008, me and her split up and I moved down to Miami to go take a job that a buddy of mine was lining up for me. He owned a import export company for the cigar industry. Okay. And, I had initially moved down to Miami because I was supposed to be taking over a, you know, controlling his warehouse for him um, that he was supposed to be getting into. And that deal fell through. Um, you know, the, the real estate deal fell through for the warehouse and all that other stuff. And so, I mean, that kind of put me in a scramble because I left a pretty good paying job here um, to go down there. Um, mostly because I needed a change of scenery mm. and two, I was trying to help a friend of mine out. And so, you know, I ended up spending about five, five months down in Miami scrambling around, trying to figure out what I was going to do. I ended up finally, you know, realizing that I couldn't find work down there at the time. So I, um, uh, ended up applying for a job up in Chicago and got a call back. The guy said, yeah, you know, when can you be here for the interview and everything else? And I told him, I said, you know, I'm down in Miami right now. I'll hit the road here in an hour or two. I can be up there, you know, by early tomorrow afternoon. And it was funny. So I drove from Miami all straight through from Miami to Chicago. It was like 14 and a half, 15 and a half hour drive, something like that. And I get up there 
and I called the guy back, you know, saying, Hey, you know, I'm in Chicago, you know, I can do the, you know, do the job interview today. You know, he, um, never answered the phone, like wouldn't return my phone calls, never answered the phone. So here I am in Chicago, not having any clues of what I'm going to do. Thankfully, uh, I had a friend of mine who lived just on the Indiana side of the Illinois border, mm-hmm. basically in southeast Chicago, for lack of a better term. And um, I ended up staying there, shoot, for a little over a year and some change, man. And, you know, it was, you know, just trying to find whatever work I could find to kind of make ends meet and stuff like that and, you know, kind of be a contributing factor, you know, around the house and stuff, you know, where I was staying at. Mm. And it was funny, man. I ended up going to Seattle on a drunken bar bet, um, <laughs> you know. That that was that was what precipitated the night at the Green Tortoise um, was a drunken bar bet in Chicago. Me and a buddy of mine, we were sitting there at a bar and commercial for um, that show on the Discovery Channel, Deadliest Catch, came on. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. But I've seen it. I've seen it. <laughs> in, in our drunken, wonderful drunkenness and everything, he, uh, he he tells me, he's like, I bet you, you couldn't last a week working on one of those boats. And, well, I've always been that kind of person. You'd never tell me that I can't do something because I'll find a way to go do it just to spite people. But... Yeah, so I mean, that took about two and a half months, and the next thing I know, I got a phone call, and the next day I was on a plane to Seattle, not knowing what was going on. So wow, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll definitely grant you, dude. April in Seattle was probably the coldest and like chilliest, like you know, bone chilling cold that I'd ever been in. That was until, of course, we got up to like Kodiak, Alaska, <laughs> where it was, you know. I think it was still like 15 degrees outside when we got up there with, you know, yeah. a below wind chill factor at the time, dude. It was ridiculous. Yeah, I just remember wearing every single piece of clothing I'd brought with me from Australia. <laughs> and uh, I had to go to the outdoors store and buy a windproof, waterproof shell jacket as well because I didn't have any proper rain gear. And it didn't really stop raining that Easter in Seattle. I remember having this vision of the traffic signs just swaying on a pendulum across the street with the wind and the rain coming down sideways almost off the off the water actually at that time that was the most the most north i'd ever been on the planet was seattle being a southern hemisphere boy you don't get that kind of cold no no man i well i got news for you man i mean i was a northern hemisphere boy and that was the farthest north i had ever been at that point <laughs> <laughs> so um me, I'm not a Southern Hemisphere guy. I'm just a Southern United States guy where, you know, cold in the wintertime is usually about 40, 45 degrees, mm. you know, around here. You may get some slight dips into the low 30s, but rarely below freezing down here. So, I mean, you know. So one of my fondest memories from the four or five days I think I might have spent at the Green Tortoise was, I remember I met you around lunchtime. The weather was really bad, so what was the point of going outside sightseeing? So we just sat in the common room and just started chatting at about 3 p.m. And it was after 3 a.m. by the time we finished chatting. It's an epic 12-hour-plus conversation, and still it's the record I've had in my life of talking to one person for an extended period of time, with only breaks being to go for a pee, to buy beer, and to buy pizza. That's it. Yes, yes. Little little did I know, Tommy, that you spent your last $35 buying a case of Heineken. (laughs) Ah, well, you know, it was worth it. It wasn't the first time, and it 
really wasn't the last time I'd done that either. I mean, you know, nah, man, it was uh, it was it was definitely an interesting thing, man. I mean, yeah, I don't think I've ever sat down and had that kind of conversation, you know, with somebody because dude, I mean, we like I think we literally covered about ninety percent of everything underneath the sun in that twelve <laughs> hours. I mean, you know, it was just. The one thing that I really remember about that entire night, dude, was it was just random. It was just random subjects that come up, you know, and we would sit there and just talk about it. And, you know, it was just like neither one of us really felt like doing anything else other than sitting around drinking beer and eating pizza. I mean, yeah, you know, so it, it, it worked. I mean, yeah, I remember we just were getting to know each other and very curious to discover more about where each of us were from. And, you know, that's just a good way to open a conversation just to get to know somebody. And then obviously we went into various topics of, you know, global situations. And I, I bet we talked about dangerous Australian animals at some point because that always happens, <laughs> you know. Oh, yes. You know, is it true that everything in Australia will kill you? I mean... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember quite an interesting interlude was because I was quite interested in the states and i was going to work in the states and work in canada i was asking somebody who was from the states about the country that they're from being you and i remember we got started talking about new york city and as soon as we said new york city this new yorker came over and just started going new york city's the best city in the world and you looked at him and he said not really <laughs> <laughs> no no and he got really upset. He was so defensive of New York, New York City. You just said to him, it ain't that great, man. And, you know, he was almost going to get into a fight with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things, man. I mean, I hate to say it. Being a Southern boy, I'm not really a fan of New York. You know, it, it's long cultural thing, you know, growing up. I mean, the Southern guys don't really care for, you know, Northern states too much. But, you know... <laughs> you know goofy thought process at that point in time in my life uh, i mean but you know it's uh no nah, i mean new york new york's fun man it's uh new york city is kind of a whole different beast from what i think a lot of people are really used to even when you grow up in you know you're around large scale cities and stuff like that i mean New York City and like New York City and Los Angeles, man, are just two totally separate beasts. I think from the rest of the world, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of you know what goes on and you know what all there is to do and the various cultures that you run into in both of those locations and everything else. So, yeah. I mean, quite different from the lifestyle in North Carolina where you're zooming in from today, right? Yeah, man, I'm uh, sitting on ten acres of land right now. Five of which is swampland that I own. I have no idea what I'm going to do with five acres of swampland, but the property, <laughs> but the rest of the property was, you know, already cleared out and required a bare minimum amount of work to get it ready to build a house on. So I mean, it's uh, it's nice and quiet down here, man. Mm. Um, my track, my my traffic jams here consists of farm equipment driving down the road in September and October, you know, when they're cutting down fields and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's nice, man. It's a nice change of pace. I, I enjoy it. And congratulations on the house. It's a fresh, brand new house built from scratch. Yes. Yes, it is, man. Um, you know, and that's, that was a whole, that was a whole other adventure in and of itself, just trying to get my house built, dude. That was... 
that that was a level of insanity that I don't think I ever came across in all my years of drinking alcohol, man. Uh, man. <laughs> no. I originally wanted to have you on as the first episode of the podcast because this is a conversation-based podcast, and I knew, having met you before, that you know how to talk, so it wouldn't be an issue filling up an hour and a half of conversation. <laughs> but you were so busy with building your house, I just figured, no, nah, I'll just leave Tommy, let him get his house finished, and then, as it turns out, your episode's a nice bookend to 2020. And I wanted to talk, Tommy, about why you came to Seattle. That was to go on this crazy adventure working in, in the commercial fishing industry. I remember we might have left the hostel on the same day and I was heading into Vancouver on a bus and I'm pretty sure you were basically that afternoon heading to the docks to get on a boat and you had your massive army <laughs> Gore-Tex beast on. Just said goodbye, but I could tell in your eyes and I'm sure you could tell in my eyes that we were venturing into an unknown, that we hadn't really a clue of where we were going and what experiences we might have. Can you describe if you can remember the types of feelings you had on that day and then the days that followed? You know, for me, man, it, it was definitely a, it, it was like excitement right up until about the time that I got on the boat. Mm. And, and I say this because, you know, you don't really think about it. And then all of a sudden you step, you know, you walk up this gangplank and the first thing that they had us do was when we got up onto the deck of the ship, you know, you kind of had to duck through the factory that's on board the ship um, because it was a uh, commercial seafood processor. It was like the most absolute foul. It was like the foulest smell that I had <laughs> ever been around in my life outside of going to like a city landfill, you know, going to a garbage dump, you know. I mean, and it was just, you know, just from the fish that they had spent you know, the crab and stuff like that, that they had just spent the last four and a half months doing, um, the crab season, they had just finished up, dude. And I mean, it just, it reeked. Um, <laughs> and so I get on board the ship and, you know, the smell hits my nose and all of a sudden I'm like going, dear God, what did I just get myself into? You know? And so, yeah, I mean, you know, it was, it was one of those things. I mean, it was just, it had this, you know, the day that I got on board the ship, um, the day that we kind of parted ways, man, it was, it was cold, wet, drizzling. And, you know, we were standing outside, you know, on the dock of the ship for, you know, nearly two and a half, three hours while they were checking all the crew members on. Cause it was what, I think it was like a hundred and might've been like a hundred and some odd people that got on board the boat that day, 130, something like that. Wow. And of course, you know, when you get on board the ship, you know, the big thing is up there is you can't carry drugs or alcohol on board the boat. So mm. they're literally doing a better job of searching your baggage than TSA does at any airport you'll walk through. <laughs> so, mm. you know, that was, that was a process in and of itself. So by the time you get there, you're cold, wet, and you're miserable. Then it just didn't end. I was cold, wet, and miserable for the next four and a half months that I was on board the boat. It was amazing, man. I mean, can you take us through what a day in the life was like for you on the fishing vessel? Um, let me see here. Uh, for me, my days, I worked, I basically worked a day shift, which was, um, it was a 16 hour day. And for me, it started at, started at six o'clock. 
in the morning and ended, I think, at about 10 o'clock at night, I think is what it was. I think it was a 6 to 10 shift that I was working. Mm. It was, you know, at that point in time, I was going up for the uh, herring and salmon run. I don't know if you've ever done, you know, like any sort of, you know, it's basically what it is. It's factory assembly line work, essentially. You're literally standing in the same, like, five square foot vicinity for eight hours straight. On a conveyor belt. Pretty much, yeah, because, I mean, for the herring run, dude, it, it, it's it's a really simple process. Basically, the fish come onto the boat. They're, you know, basically sucking the fish off the fishing vessel through this giant tube, <laughs> um, vac- vacuum tube. Wow. And so the fish come onto the boat, and then they drop down onto a conveyor belt that basically goes around. And my job that first season was simply loading trays of fish or loading fish onto a tray, sticking the trays on the cart, and just loading carts of fish so that way they could go into uh, what's called a blast freezer. You know, it, it's it's a freezer that would turn one of those herring into a hockey puck in about an hour and a half. You know, and so I would do that for eight hours. And then after that, I would uh, go to lunch. Then I would, after my lunch break, I would go back. And then my job for the second half, because we actually had two jobs on board the ship, mm-hmm. the second half of the day would be spent actually taking the fish out of the freezers and casing them up, putting them in the boxes, getting ready, to, getting them ready to go to the market and stuff like that. So, I mean, that was essentially my first season in its entirety, you know, working on the boat. I mean. So for four and a half months, that was your daily routine. Yep. Yep. And that did was you it, get man. days off? No. No. No sick days, no days off. Um the only time that we got days off per se was if there was a scheduling conflict and a boat was late coming in. Mm. I mean, you know, but it, as long as as long as there was fish coming into the boat, people were working and I mean and they they did a good job of scheduling it so that way once the season started and really got going it was around the clock 24 hours a day seven days a week the factory was moving yeah. i mean there really wasn't much downtime so once you finished this initial season did you call your friend up back in chicago and tell him where to go <laughs> um you know what strangely enough i still have not collected that uh that particular debt that he owes me um at this point in time but uh <laughs> no it, it was it was hilarious man because i i remember like there was a span of like three weeks where like the boat was nearly on the verge of mutiny, man. I mean, everybody and their mother was talking about quitting. Mm. And uh, it's, it's funny because when you quit the boat up in Alaska, the ship is required to do one thing and that's get you to a spot on land that has a place to sleep, a restaurant and medical treatment in case you whatever i got news for you man there's a little place it's called saint paul up in the middle of the bering sea it's basically a little rock in the middle of the ocean that fits all of those bills and there's really nothing on it i mean like i think the medical the food and the hotel is literally about the only thing there i mean i think the place has got like 200 year-round residents on it Mm. um you know and so once they drop you off you're responsible for getting back to wherever it is you want to go. And it was funny. The only thing that kept me from quitting that job 
was the fact that a plane ticket at that point in time was going to run me almost $2,200 <laughs> to get from, I think we, I think at that point in time we were in Bristol Bay. We were sitting right in the mouth of uh, Bristol Bay over on the west side of the Kenai Peninsula. And uh, by the time I paid for the plane ticket to get me to Anchorage, mm. to buy the little puddle jumper plane ticket that would get me to Anchorage, and then from Anchorage back to Seattle, I was looking at almost $2,200, and then I was looking at another $800 for a flight from Seattle back to the East Coast. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know what, dude? I, I'm not going to sit here and spend four months of my life working just to pay for a plane ticket to quit my job. That's just, you know, and so I, I just, I kind of got it into my head that, you know what, I can do anything in the world over a short enough time span, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I can, I can kind of suck up anything uncomfortable, you know, that's not very pleasant and everything else. I can do it for a short enough time frame and just deal with it. And so ironically enough, I was, I was gonna finish the contract out and then I had already like, you know, a month into it, I figured out that I'm going to finish a contract out and then I'm never doing this again. This is just this is a stupid way to make a living. I don't know why anybody and her mother would ever want to do this. And well, then I ended up doing it for another three and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> do you think your experience in the military helped you to be able to cope with that kind of environment and that kind of discomfort and being in around those people who were tired and angry and creating a mutiny with each other? I, I would say honestly that yeah that that had a large part to do with it being in the Marine Corps I mean one of the first things that they beat into you is a sense of discipline mm. and then after that they beat in a sense of integrity to you so I mean in situations like that it really comes more down to it just being a more about making just kind of making a point you know than actually whether or not you really enjoy it it's you know I, I signed up for this. You know, I signed a contract, you know, it, it's about honoring, you know, that contract and honoring, you know, your word of doing what you say you're going to do. So no doubt, no doubt. You said you did another three and a half seasons. Was it the exact same routine or were you working on different boats catching different marine life? No, it was it was largely the same routine. But uh, over the next over the next couple of years and everything else, man, I actually I went. Well, I guess I should say what kept me on the boat to begin with was I had uh, met my wife, and she was one of the staff members, basically one of the ship's crew members on the boat. She was the uh, one of the cooks, mm -hmm. and uh, when we started dating, yeah, that was that was funny because nobody bothered to tell me that she was the captain's daughter when we started <laughs> seeing each other. <laughs> And so, you know, realistically speaking, I mean, you know, it, it was, you know, I stayed on board the ship because of my wife, um, you know, or at that point in time, she was my girlfriend and stuff like that. And she conned me into doing it, um, <laughs> you know, and so, but, uh, you know, but yeah, I mean, for about the next year, it was mostly the same thing day in and day out, you know, a couple of different jobs. I mean, there's a lot of different moving parts on board the ship. So, I mean, mm. you know, typically speaking, after you finish your first contract, you can kind of pick whatever job you wanted to do. After my first contract, 
I intentionally picked everything that would keep me outside up on the deck of the ship, which in turn led to me being offered a position as a crew deckhand on board the ship versus being a minimum wage contract factory worker. So so a lot more pleasant for you to endure for those four and a half months, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and it's like anything else, man. I mean, you know, you get into an uncomfortable situation where you have no idea what's going on and you're learning as you go. You typically tend to be miserable. But if you but if you walk into it knowing what to expect, you know how to cope with it. You know, you kind of know the way things are going to go. So it starts to not bother you nearly as much. I mean, you know, it, it actually, you know. My second, my third season on board the boat, man, I actually got to a point to where I really enjoyed it and mm. honestly didn't see myself doing anything different. I mean, mm. that was where I decided that, you know, my career and my life would, you know, end up going is in that direction. So what kinds of things did you see on the boat? I'm sort of imagining that you saw some killer whales or some you know, crazy waves or did you see anything that you would never see anywhere else on the world? Well, I mean, you know, with it being Alaska and the Pacific Northwest, man, yeah, I mean, the winter times, the winter times up there were definitely, definitely a lot of fun. In between the freezing temperatures being an average of 15 below zero every day of the week, the seas in the North, in the Pacific Northwest, um, up around Alaska get really rough in the winter time. You know, there's, also, the problem of massive ice flows coming down out of the Arctic and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and everything else. When you get uh, when you get up into around the middle of the Bering Sea and uh, heading up towards um, Nome, Alaska, um, which is all the way up in the top of the state, mm-hmm. you know. So, I mean, the farther north you go, I mean, you definitely run into some really interesting things. I mean, what uh, what really really amazed me was the fact that, you know, that, that first contract when I met you, I was sitting up there and of course it was summertime up in Alaska and it was so weird because I remember it being like three o'clock in the morning and the sun was sitting just on the horizon. Mm -hmm. You know, you could still see like the top half of the sun and I could watch it literally move watch the sun move along the horizon from the west, you know, from the west over to the east and then come back up. It, like, <laughs> never actually set. And that was the first time that, you know, I had ever experienced, you know, anything like that. And, you know, that was really cool. We ended up taking a trip up to uh, Norton Sound, which is where Nome is located on the northern side of Norton Sound. And, you know, we ended up getting caught in this massive, massive ice field, man. I mean, we spent, like, three days, you know, just kind of cutting through this ice field. Um, we had a couple of fishing boats that were like basically right up on the, you know, stern of the ship, the back of the boat following us through the ice, you know, cause we were basically cutting the path for them, mm-hmm. you know, through the ice. I mean, that was, that was really interesting. And then, uh, yeah, man, I mean, you know, you get to see a lot of really neat things, man. I mean, you know, obviously with it being Alaska, definitely a lot of orcas, killer whales, and then you get into some areas of Alaska, man, where it's just cool because you get to sit there and watch, like, sea otters play around in a river all day long, you know. I mean, just kind of floating on their backs, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. But realistically, man, I mean, it's Alaska is its own entity, man. I mean, over the period of about three and a half years that I was up there, 
you know, we were in the same spots, you know, every year. I mean, so you, you got used to the scenery, mm. but you never actually got used to the scenery, man. I mean, you know, it, it was breathtaking any time that you see it, no matter how often you see it. So you'll never grow tired of that kind of environment, I imagine. No, I, I mean, at least me. I mean, you know, speaking, you know, speaking for me personally, I mean, if it wasn't so expensive and so cold up in Alaska, I'd probably live up there year round. I mean, mm. you know, if we could just get like Florida, get like Florida's weather up there, <laughs> you know, we'd be, I'd, I'd move. I mean, of course, then again, half the beauty would probably melt away, but you know. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Can you articulate what? For you, the best and the worst things were for your time on the fishing boats. Um, for me, the best thing about it, man, is even though you were doing the same thing day in and day out, because of the environment that you were working in, it was never the same thing day in and day out. You know, I mean, there were always little changes, little challenges, and stuff like that that you would have to pop up and deal with, weather-wise, environmentally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one I remember one time we actually had to bring the factory to a grinding halt and stop everything that we were doing and we actually had to turn the ship off completely because some endangered bird <laughs> some endangered species bird landed within 500 yards of the ship and I mean and it was literally like right at the 500 yard threshold okay and we could not we could not start the ship back up until that bird flew away, and it ended up sticking around for the better part of eight, like eight or nine hours. I mean, just sitting there <laughs> floating in the water, and, and you know, so you've got this crew of like a hundred and some odd people all standing up on the bow of the ship, looking at this bird and just going, "What the crap, dude? I mean, you know, what 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 is going on here? Why why are we not doing anything?" The worst part about it, man, is. For me, it was just honestly getting used to the weather up there, mm. you know, learning, learning how to cope with the weather. Once you got past that, it, it was, it was simple, man. It was easy. Get up, go to work, you go home and you go to sleep. I mean, it was, it was a harder life, but it was a very simple life. It was a very cut and dry life. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how many seasons did you do in total? Five, I think I made five and a half. I was on my sixth, well, I made five trips. I was on my sixth when I got hurt, um, you know, and ended up, you know, having to leave the, leave the industry. So, yeah. Are you able to talk about that a little bit? Oh yeah, absolutely, man. That doesn't bother me at all. So what actually happened to you on the boat? Um, long, complicated story short. Um, I, uh. Woke up one morning at uh, 5.30 like I normally did. Uh, never got a chance to finish drinking my first cup of coffee because at the time I was working as a deck, you know, I'd had my position as a deckhand. We had a pretty severe situation dealing with a fishing vessel that was tied up to my ship mm. that had, just with the rough seas and everything overnight, all the mooring lines had gotten really, really loose. And, um, we were in the process of trying to retie the boat up and tighten all the lines up and six o'clock in the morning, no coffee. I went and put my foot in a mooring line and then the mooring line got wrapped around, wrapped around my right foot and basically just obliterated my right foot. You know, really, really, 
long, nasty, interesting story to go along with that, but I'm not certain how graphic you want to get. (laughs) I do remember you posting a picture on Facebook, actually. (laughs) I mean, I was mortified, you know, because I knew that that was pretty serious. It seemed like... You know, you were taking it in your stride, I imagine, but that was pretty serious, wasn't it? I mean, it was the end of your your fishing career as you knew it, right? Um, I thought it was at the time, yeah. Um, mm. You know, it ended up ultimately being, yes. I mean, it ended up being the end of my fishing career, but it wasn't, you know, losing losing the lower half of my right leg, you know, as a result of the injury and everything else. It It ended up being my choice not to go back and that choice had nothing to do with you know being afraid to go back up there or the work you know that would be required it was just one of those things i mean by the time that i was you know healthy enough and rehabbed enough to go back up there i i had you know a wife and two kids by that point in time and you know so it became more about spending time with my family you know taking priority and precedence than you know being away for four and a half to, you know, anywhere between four and a half to nine months out of the year, depending on how many contracts I ran. So, yeah, I mean. Yeah. What age were you when that injury happened? I was 32, man. I was almost eight years ago now. Yeah. So I imagine at that stage when you're pushing into your mid-30s, you do start to think perhaps differently about your life choices and you having a, a young family as well. I totally can see why you'd rather spend your days with them than away from them. You know, a lot of it just has to do, I mean, you know, I, I saw guys who worked on the ship and who had been lifelong, you know, Alaskan fishermen. I mean, I'm talking guys that are in their fifties, sixties and seventies and had been working up there since they were 18. Mm. And most of the guys, man, you know, they either had fairly dysfunctional marriages when they got home you know, if they had, you know, a wife and kids and stuff like that, there there was always a tension in the marriage. And it's just because, you know, the wife or whatever, you know, had to spend nine months out of the year keeping control of everything and, you know, keeping that ship afloat. Sure. And then, you know, of course, the guy comes home and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, what mom says doesn't go anymore, you know, because dad's home and, <laughs> you know. And and dad's only home for eight weeks before he's got to go back up. Or, you know, the guys, dude, I mean, they were on their third, fourth, some guys, sixth or seventh marriages. And, you know, it's like, and I don't know, man, I just decided that, you know what, it's, that's not worth it to me. You know, Mm. that, that kind of tension and that kind of stress just ain't worth it. So. Yeah, it makes sense to me, man. Do you miss the fishing lifestyle? Every single day. Really? Every single day, man. Um, you know, both both me and my wife miss it. It you know, as much as I love my kids, if it weren't for them, we'd both still be up there doing it. It was definitely a way of life for her because she grew up around it and it had become a way of life for me because it had essentially cut out all the unnecessary bs in my life you know i just i didn't have time for anything Mm. um you know it it was it was nice because for at least nine months out of the year i was clean and sober and all that other stuff and you know could actually think and function and not wake up every day with a screaming migraine but you know (laughs) 
How far away do you live from the ocean now, Tommy? Um, well, as a crow flies, I am about 35 minutes away from it. Do you have a boat then? No, I do not. No. Boats are not something that I am interested in personally owning because they cost entirely too much money to maintain. Yeah. <laughs> um, Another person on the podcast said exactly the same thing. <laughs> you know, the word the word boat is not actually a word. It's an acronym and it stands for bust another thousand, um, <laughs> you know, because you're you're going to be dumping money into it in some way, shape or form, almost on a constant basis for maintenance and things of that sure. nature. Yeah. Um, I've got, I've got friends of mine that have got, you know, little sport fishing boats. Some of them, you know, have slightly larger vessels and stuff like that. Um, that me and my wife, we go out on quite a bit and everything else. So, I mean, but as far as owning a boat, no, I have no interest in it whatsoever. Mm. Have you been on a vessel since you've lost your leg? Is that more difficult to balance and stuff like that? <sighs> really what it boils down to is the size of the ship i mean obviously you know the smaller the smaller the vessel the less water that it displaces so the bumpier the ride's going to get um the larger the vessel you're typically going to be all right unless you know you start getting into seas that are 30 40 foot high which you know was a common you know thing up in alaska when you're crossing you know either the gulf of alaska on occasions up in the Bering Sea in the wintertime and stuff like that and everything else, when you were away from ice flows and things, you know, the seas would get pretty, pretty heavy and pretty choppy, so. I remember I was talking to you the other day and you had this great quote, it wasn't losing my leg that changed my life, it was having a family. No, nah, man, I mean, and that, and, that, and that was a God's honest truth, man. I mean, because... Up until that point, I was an alcoholic. I was a drug addict. Um, I'll, I'll tell anybody I was I was not a good person. I, I you know even even that night that you know you and I spent at the Green Tortoise just talking and chatting like we've known each other for forever and a day like old friends. Mm. I mean, you know, looking back on it, I was not somebody I would want to be within twenty feet of. Man, I mean, you know, I was I was an absolute train wreck. And, you know, it, it was, it was one of those things where losing my leg was honestly the best thing to happen to me in my life because it forced me to stop. It forced me to slow down. It, it gave me, you know, six months to really kind of sit around and reevaluate my direction in life and everything else and, you know, what I was doing and, realizing that what I was doing would eventually end up killing me. So it provided a wonderful time frame of very much needed clarity. How long in total did your rehabilitation go for? I imagine these things take quite a lot of time. Actual, like, physical rehabilitation took a month and a half. So is that I, I was, getting a cast for uh, a prosthetic leg and getting your strength back and that kind of thing? Yeah, it, it, from the time that I started physical therapy until they kicked me loose. It was about 45, 50 days, something like that. It was under two months. Mm. The rest of that six month, you know, six month time frame was actually healing up and recovering strictly from the surgery itself. And then, um, you know, going through, uh, pain management stuff and everything, mm. you know, cause there was a considerable amount of pain that, um, led to a 
thankfully very short-lived Oxycontin addiction for me. Um, it was one of those things that, yeah, I mean, as far as like the actual physical rehab goes, no, my, uh, my physical therapist dude was absolutely ruthless. I mean, (laughs) you know, she was like, you're not wasting any time. You know, you're 32 years old. Get back up on your feet. Start walking. I mean, dude, she was an absolute drill sergeant. As much pain as I was in by the time physical therapy was done, man, I mean, 45 days later, I was walking out the door with nothing else she could do for me. She's like, you're good to go. I mean, the the rest you're just going to have to kind of learn to, you know, learn to make adjustments to on your own. So I imagine along with the physical healing, there's the emotional and the spiritual healing as well. But that obviously takes a lot longer and potentially is everlasting. What would you think about that? Um... The emotional stuff, you know, I'll be honest with you, man. I never, I never had time to sit down and I guess emotionally process the loss of my leg. Mm. And that was because me and my wife at that point in time, we had been married since November. Um, Don't forget this. Hold on. <laughs> November 7th. <laughs> November 7th. <laughs> November. <laughs> November 17th was when we got married, or it might have been the 12th. Uh-oh. It might have been the 12th. <laughs> <laughs> I got like two weeks to get this straight, man. I'm good. Uh, you know. and, my wife, and my wife knows that I can never remember when we got married because we actually got married three times by the time you know everything was all said and done. But we had been married for, what, two and a half months at the point in time of my accident because that was on uh, January 13th, 2013. By the time that my accident happened, we were married, you know, newly married, and she was already pregnant with our oldest son, mm-hmm. you know, so it was in between her doctor's appointments for the baby, my doctor's appointments and stuff like that, that I had every day in Seattle, dude. I mean, we would spend, we would easily spend six, seven hours a day sitting in a car fighting traffic in Seattle because we lived about 45 minutes to an hour outside of Seattle. At that time. And I mean, it was just, I was so busy that I never really sat down and did the whole poor, poor, pitiful me, you know, what happened to me, blah, blah, you know, I never had time for it. And it's funny because in a way that was a, that was a huge blessing to me because typically speaking, I'm somebody that would, if left to my own devices, that would be the kind of thing that I would normally dwell on. Hmm. You know, I'm at a point now where it's, you know, I've had people ask me, it's like, well, don't you think you ought to take the time now that, you you know, everything's settled down? And I'm like, why? I've moved on. I wake up in the morning and I put my socks and shoes on the same way that everybody else does. It just, you know, I've got one leg that my sock and my shoe never comes off of. I mean, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> oh, that's good. That's good. Greatest thing about being an amputee, man, is a 12-pack, you know, 12-pair of sock, you know, pack that you get at Walmart or whatever, dude, last me, like, 24 days before I actually have to sit down and do laundry. I mean, it's amazing. Um, you know, cause I only wear one sock every day. I mean, <laughs> so, but what would you say has been your most adventurous endeavor to date? Honestly, man, Costa Rica, me and my wife, uh, the ironically enough, the, the contract before I got hurt, I had spent nine and a half months straight on board 
the ship because we had an extremely slow we had an extremely slow snow crab season that year that ran literally I think we finished up because up in Alaska everything's done by a quota system and the season does not end until that quota is met because Alaska is a severely controlled fishing industry I mean it, if you want to look at if you want to look at conservation and sustainability and everything else, the Alaskan fishing industry is the model that everybody should follow. Mm. So by the time we got off the boat in September, my boss took one look at me and he said, dude, I really appreciate all the work that you put on the ship. He said, but quite frankly, you've become an insufferable dick. Do not come <laughs> back to the boat. He said, when we pull into port, you're going to get off the boat the second the anchor drops. And he said, you're not going to come back until we leave in December. He said, I don't want to see you around here. Me and my wife, we were fortunate enough to have uh, one of the crew members on board the ship was a was a native Costa Rican. Mm. And, I mean, his family still lived down there and everything else. And so he, he wasn't going to be able to make it down because he usually goes down at the end of the year and spends Christmas down there, but he wasn't going to be able to make it that year. So he rented us his house down there for, I think, 1100 bucks. Nice. We ended up spending two and a half months down in uh, a little fishing village down there called Capos, Costa Rica. That was on the, I think, the uh, west side of like the big resort area of Manuel Antonio. It was kind of down on the west side of the mountain um, from Manuel Antonio. And, I mean, that was just, that was so much fun, man, because, I mean, you know, you go walking, you know, they've got some really, really nice, like, national parks down there and everything else to where you can go walking through the jungle, and, you know, we did that quite a bit, and with Costa Rica being such a small country, you're able to, you know, three hours in either direction, you're able to get to Nicaragua, you're able to get to Panama, you know, things of that nature. So, I mean, that was just, that was just a good time, man. We met a lot of people down there um, that we're still friends with today um, <clears throat> that we keep in touch with. And that was just a vacation, you know, that, you know, and that was just a, you know, point of travel for me that I definitely, that I definitely won't forget just because of, you know, the interesting people that we ran into and my God, the restaurants down there, the food, you know, when you start talking about native, you know, native Costa Rican food down there, I mean, it's absolutely amazing. So I imagine the weather was right up your rally as well. Yeah, I think it was uh, 92 degrees every day by about eight o'clock in the morning. It was nice. I mean, you know, I, I was good with that, you know, <laughs> especially after spending nine months freezing to death. Yes, no, I, mean, <laughs> I was all right with it. Defrosting for a bit down in Costa Rica. <laughs> Not going to lie, man. It, it, it definitely, it was definitely nice. I mean, you know. Do you have any places on your wish list of where you might want to travel in the future? Right now, man, the biggest, I think the biggest one on my bucket list right now is probably Israel. Mm. Um, you know, I, I want to go, uh, I would definitely love to go over to Israel, Palestine. I would actually like to go to Syria. That's not a trip that I would probably take my wife and my family on, though. Um, yeah. You know, given given the hostilities and stuff going on over there right now, but I mean... Um, just from a standpoint of keeping them safe. But, I mean, those are three three biggest areas right there. And then probably also 
probably doing a tour of kind of like Greece, Turkey, and then Upper Egypt and stuff like that and everything else right now. I mean, but that's got to do with the fact that, you know, since my days of fishing and everything else, I'm now a, you know, biblical student and everything else. I'm going through Bible college right now. So, I mean, it would just be, it would be really interesting to be able to walk around and see a lot of the sites and stuff like that and everything else and kind of, you know, walk that path 2,000 years, you know, after the fact. Yeah, yeah, it'd be extremely good to get on the ground there and be in the physical presence of what you've read about and the places that have been mentioned. What about you, man? Where are you, uh, where are you wanting to head off to? Well, doing this podcast series and catching up with people I've met over the last decade or more. And I'm reading a few different books now, which are kind of making me feel really anxious to do something pretty extreme again. The issue is, obviously, I have to be patient because there's no point really in traveling in a way right now because the experience just wouldn't be as free and liberating. And that's kind of the point of traveling. Right. So my sister is getting married um, next year. So I have a wedding to go to in Australia about a year from now, just a bit less, I'd say. I'm thinking of doing a lot of traveling on either side of that trip to Australia. Uh, a few new destinations to check out and some places that I've always said to some people who I know who are from there, I'll get there one day. And they seem to think that my one day means never. So <laughs> <laughs> I need to actually go there. So yeah, there's that. You know, this this potentially could be many months more or less of around the world trip where I have to be in Australia on a certain date, but then on either side of that, I have time to, to just do a full circle. I have a, a, a vague route in my mind, um, but that's very much open to change. And um, I mean, wait and see in the new year, what's happening with all this COVID stuff. Yeah. And then I've got another extreme idea as well, which is something that I thought about doing probably more than five years ago, but I got distracted with, with other uh, pursuits, but I potentially could revisit that again, but we'll see. We'll see, Tommy. <laughs> Fast five. Five quick fire questions require five quick fire answers. My guests must answer five random questions about traveling without thinking too much. So here's the fast five. Are you ready, Tommy? Sure. Question number one. Northern or southern? Northern. Question number two. Left or right? Uh, right. Question number three. Mountains or beaches? Mountains. Question number four. Pub or club? Pub. And question number five, public or private? Mm, private. There you go. Smash the fast five. <laughs> <laughs> fast five. 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 I was wondering, uh, I thought you might have said southern, but you said northern. Intriguing. It's, uh, it, it's really interesting, man. Um, one, of the, one of the neat things about losing a body part is... <laughs> <laughs> Is is in order for me to be able to walk around, you know, in addition to the prosthetic itself, um, I have to wear this rubber sleeve on my leg at all times, um, and it basically acts as the suspension system for the leg. You know, basically my leg is what's called a vacuum suspension system, 
And so the sleeve has got a rubber gasket on the outside of it. And when I put my leg on, it, it uh, blows all the air out through a one-way air valve. Mm. Um, and I say all this to say that uh, that thing really holds in a whole lot of heat. And I'm not a fan of summertime anymore, man. I'm, I'm more of a fan of like weather that I've got today where it's like 55, 60 degrees. Uh, because in the summertime, I sweat profusely now. I mean, I could be standing, I mean, I could literally be standing outside doing nothing. And within 15, 20 minutes, it's like somebody walks over and just dumps a five gallon bucket of water on my head. So I do not, <laughs> I do not look forward to summertime anywhere near as much as I used to. Wow. So I was wondering, Tommy, in terms of your children, do you wish for them that they would do traveling and go on adventures when they grow up? Absolutely. Um, I would, I would rather see my kids grow up traveling and me and my wife, we try to do, you know, a lot of us based stuff right now, just simply because it's a, you know, it's a factor of time because I don't know if you know this or not, but when you have a family of four airline tickets get, even when you're buying coach and even when you're flying Southwest, I mean, it gets, it gets pricey. Yeah. So we do a lot of road trips, you know, because I can, I can spend pretty much the same amount of money, you know, paying for gas in my truck and everything else. And we can see a whole lot more other than just flying over somewhere for five minutes, you know, that you happen to be looking out the window. Um, both my wife and I really try to push taking at least one or two road trips every year that usually last anywhere between two to four weeks Nice every year. Um, you know, just so that way the kids get out and see other areas of the country, um, get around and see various places and how, how other people live. Because, I mean, yeah, that's, that's definitely something that's really important. Because, I mean, you see that in a lot of people who don't travel they end up getting this very, very closed kind of mindset towards, you know, they only know and really don't appreciate how they live. And it's not something you can really do until you see other people. I mean, for instance, I mean, my, my first real, my first real experience in seeing, you know, what I would, I would say was absolute poverty was in our two and a half month trip down to Costa Rica, you know, years ago, mm. you know, and, and it was funny because I mean, you know, I, I look at these people and from an American, from a very, from a very, very naive American standpoint, you'd look at these people and say they have absolutely nothing yet. You talk to them. They're all laughs, all smiles, all joking, very happy. It's like, they have no idea that to use the American phrase, you know, they're very dirt poor people. <laughs> and and it was just an extremely humbling thing to realize that, you know what, all the stuff that I have ain't making me happy. Everything that I'm able to buy because, you know, I'm working in a job that's paying me, you know, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year, that's that's not where happiness comes from. It's it's being around people. It's being around family. So yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, if if I can get them to do anything, it's grab a passport and go. I mean, you know, go go see other people, go see other cultures. Absolutely. Tommy, if you were able to 
teleport yourself back to Seattle in 2010, now that it's 2020 and you're 10 years older, what would you say to yourself? Let's say if there was a third member of our conversation in the common room, there was me and you, and then a different Tommy, what would yourself now say to your younger Tommy? Do it all the same way. I mean, you know, I would, I would probably tell him, Hey, you know what? In three years, you're not going to be yourself anymore. You're, you're not going to be who you are. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt, but do it anyways. You know, I have, I have very little regrets over the last 10 years of my life, man. And the way things have gone. I mean, it's, like I said, at that point in time, the day that I got on the boat, man, I mean, that was a pretty, pretty dark time in my life for me. But, I mean, basically, it would just be hold on, deal with it. It gets better. It gets a whole lot better. Life is just kind of up around the bend. A very optimistic sentiment, and I'm sure we all need that sometimes, especially in these dark days that we live in now with COVID-19 and people having lots of different kinds of issues all over the world you can get into you know you can get into the politics of it and stuff like that but you know i honestly think the level of hopelessness that you know we're seeing in a lot of people now because of covid um it was there probably a little bit deeper under the surface than what it is now but by far and large, man. I mean, I just think that the vast majority of people are looking for something to hope for, hope, you know, to believe in whatever you want to, you know, however you want to call it. I mean, you know, it's, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that COVID has, I definitely think it's done a good job of bringing to the surface the fears and anxieties that, you know, a lot of people have probably had for years and years before this and this was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back before it all just came bubbling out you know it's a good way of putting it tommy that's all the questions i have for you tommy right on man nice work it was good talking to you man it really was thanks for listening to the nostalgic vagabond my guest has been tommy gwynn there are more episodes in this podcast series where you can hear different stories from other travels. Check them out wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also follow me at The Nostalgic V. Thanks to Tom Forfer for creating the soundtrack to the series. Don't forget, your journey is special. Own it. I've been Alan Hill. Until next time.